All right, as we get into Samuel, here's what we are going to talk about. I've titled this morning's message, Honored Sons. So there's a very specific context for how Elkanah and Hannah honor their son, Samuel. There's a specific context for how Eli honors his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. As we use those as templates, it also paints this image for how God the Father has and continues to honor his son, Jesus, our Christ, our Messiah. But even later on in Samuel, we watch how Samuel honors his sons in a similar way that uh, that Eli honors his sons, and it's in disobedience to the Lord. So even as parents, how we put up with the naughtiness of our kids that we ought not to is kind of some, some of the subject matter that we're going to sit in this morning. But this idea of honoring our children, honoring our sons, and how we do that in the Lord, and how that can be done outside of the Lord. And at the same time, as we begin, I want you to have, I want you to have this question in your mind as we go through the text this morning. And it's, do you know Hannah's God? And is Hannah your God? I've told you in the few weeks of introduction that we've had to Samuel, there are going to be multiple times that what God says and what God does feel on the surface extremely uncomfortable. As we sit in Hannah's song, her kingdom melody this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is where we're going to begin, so you can turn there in your Bibles. So we begin in her song this morning. Is this the song that you would sing as you were leaving your post-toddler juvenile son at the gates of the tabernacle and you're going to walk away? I mean, this, this, is, this is a fabulous song. And it's fabulous, again, because she's in relationship with Yahweh, her God. She knows the Lord. We're going to sit this morning that God is the one who has all knowledge, but we are told in this morning's text that Hophni and Phinehas do not know the Lord. Next week, as we turn to chapter 3 of Samuel, we are told in Samuel's young life that he didn't know the Lord yet. So there was a transition and a maturity uh, season in his life. But this is, this is my prayer this morning. If you have an image, an idea, a tradition of the Almighty God that is false in any fashion, that this would be the day that those monuments are pushed over. I pray that same thing for my own heart. There are ideas that I've had of God historically that do not line up with how he has revealed himself in truth that it's when I am confronted with those things, when you are confronted with those things, the heart of humility, the heart of worship, the heart that honors God, lets go of the false and seizes and grabs on to what is true. You know, there's this constant state of repentance and turning away from ourselves, our ideas, different traditions and ideas, religions that have painted these ideas for God, for us, that we hold on to that really aren't true. So that these would be the things that would fall over in our lives today. And ultimately, the New Testament, John chapter 17, ties the knowledge of God to eternal life. Eternal life is to know your Savior. It's to know who he is. But it's beyond just a book knowledge. It's, there's an experiential knowledge. 
And as we travel down this road of life, walking with Jesus, that experience grows. That experience transforms us through the power of God into his image as we follow him and process with him in life. But listen to Hannah's song here in chapter 2. And we'll see if you like what she says. And just so you know, as Hannah is singing here, uh, you can go turn to Luke chapter 1, both Mary and Zechariah. They knew they were very well aware of Hannah's song. And when you can just sit and what Mary sang, as she is pregnant with our Savior, it, she's, she's singing the words of Hannah. Uh, multiple direct links between the subjects. All right, Hannah prayed and said, and now remember our context. She is a woman who was barren, a woman who is the first wife, and there's a second wife, there's her rival. The rival, the second wife, has multiple children, and Hannah has none. She's praying to the Lord. She's miserable, pouring out her heart to the Lord, and commits that if the God gives her a son, she will give that son to the Lord all the days of his life as a Nazarite. And now Samuel has been weaned. Here she is with her husband, handing this son over to the Lord. And yes, to Eli and to Eli's household to minister and serve to the Lord. And as she's processing through this event in her life, here's what she sings to God. My heart rejoices in the Lord. I don't think her heart could rejoice if she did not have a relationship with the Lord in regards to what she was doing. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, again, context. When Hannah is sitting here singing, I smile at my enemies, who's her enemy in the immediate context? Penina, the rival wife, the wife that has mocked her and ridiculed her and made her life miserable. God has answered her prayer. She is now no longer barren, but has birthed a son. And Hannah is attributing this gift of God in her life as her salvation. Look what she says. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. For Hannah, in, in, in context, in this moment, her salvation is the birth of her son. It's the gift of a son to Hannah. Again, this is sitting in the culture. It's saving her from the ridicule of the rival bride. It's say in regards to salvation, it's saving her in her culture. Sons are to take care of you in later life. There's just, just the whole idea culturally that's going on. But again, you can sit in this and point to the New Testament that we rejoice in God's salvation, in God gifting to humanity his son. This is one of the things that we need to sit in just theologically. And again, somebody, if they already have not, they could do their doctrinal dissertation just on Hannah's portrayal of God in this section. It is very deep, very thick, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. But when we say that God has given us his son for our salvation to save us from what? There's multiple things that we have to sit in. Like, what does it mean that God has a son? To many, that's, that's an offensive idea. We're going to sit in a moment in Hannah's song that there is only one God. And our God has revealed himself 
multiple ways in the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the beginning, when he creates the heavens and the earth, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, this being that is outside of the creation that has the power to make all that is. This is God. In the second sense, it says it talks about the spirit of God. Well, how is the God different from the spirit of God? And then you have God speaking and New Testament very clearly pointing to Jesus as the Messiah is the personified word of God, that he was with God in the beginning, that all things were created by the word of God, by God's son, Jesus. So when we sit in this idea of son, we are not saying that God has begotten, has burst any part of himself at any time in his eternity. He has always been in this revealed relationship of father, son, and spirit. Again, using the language of father and son, this is, this is human language to help us understand the nature and the character of our God. So when we say that, God, that Jesus is God's son, you get into really weird ideas. Well, that Jesus was created at some point in time. That, uh, and again, there's, there's all kinds of weird, false ideas in relation to this. But the truth is, is that the eternal God that created man, male and female, in his image, intentionally became part of his creation so that he could save his creation from death. And death is a separation. A physical death is your spirit is separated from the body. That's what death is. An eternal death is an eternal separation from that which is life, which is the almighty God. So when we talk about heaven and hell, hell's definition is a permanent and eternal choice of I want to be separate from my creator. That's the definition of what hell is. So when we talk about that Jesus, that our God, the Father, has sent our God, the Son, to save us from our sins, there's a lot of, there's a lot of information there, but there's a lot of ideas in religion or just in surface thinking that can allow us to form an idol and an idea of God that is not true. Our God has never changed. He has never been created at any moment. The Father was not the eternal God, and at some point he created the Son. That's none of the language that we get in the, in the Bible at all. So with that little bit of information and rambling under our belt, this is my next question. What has your God saved you from? And, this, and again, this, this is a... This is a this is an, an extended meditation point for you. What has your creator saved you from? Again, we can sit with Hannah. Yes, salvation is that salvation from death, and we have been given our God's eternal life. But like her specific nuance is this salvation. He has become my salvation, and I rejoice in the salvation that he has provided. She was a barren woman, and now she has produced a son. And she's identifying this act of God in her life as an act of salvation, an act of deliverance, an act of refuge. I can, I can list... <laughs> I could, I could spend the rest of this message telling you all the ways that God has saved me. I have very specific, big picture ideas in who I was before Christ, 
what, how he revealed himself to me, how he exposed my sins to me, how he delivered me out of that lifestyle and those circumstances, the people that he provided in my life to walk alongside of me, to share the gospel, to teach me, to disciple me, to sanctify me. I can tell you how he's changed my mind and how he's changed my heart. I can tell you all the ways that I have failed him miserably over the last 23 years and how he has saved me and cleansed me out of every bramble patch that I've jumped into willingly. My God has saved me in thousands of ways. And the consistent salvation in that is he has never left me. He has never forsaken me. He, is always, he always brings his light. He always confronts me. He is always gentle. He always speaks exactly what I need to hear. He, he has just been consistently glorious to me. And then I rage at myself because I love him passionately. Why is my heart so prone to leave the one that I love? Right, I, can, I can give you a thousand ways that the Lord has been my salvation and why I rejoice in him at my salvation and why today I can smile at anything that stands in opposition to me because I know who my God is. I know who has saved me. I know who I am outside of him. I know who I am in him. And even my cry for you and my cry for all of humanity, it's to know him. Oh, may we know our God and celebrate him grandly. And if this is the pace that we go all morning, on to make it to verse 3. Verse 2. Wait, again, out of, out, of, out of Hannah's mouth, major theology. No one is holy like Yahweh. There is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Again, the idea of holiness. Holiness is what God is. He is completely and fully set apart. He is holy. He is high. He is pure. He is clean. There is none beside him. There is no God that is equal with God. There is no God above God. There is no God below God. He alone is the definition of this word God, the one who has created all. There is no rock, rock, this idea of fortress, of refuge. You can go sit in Exodus 17, the rock of Horeb, and all the imagery of what Hannah is saying, there is no rock like our God. Exhortation, talk no more very proudly. Don't talk high. Let no arrogant, literally, let no unrestrained, let nothing unrestrained come out of your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Here, again, there is, there is no other God, major idea, and God is all-knowing. He knows everything. And he, here's the contrast. What you think you know, you know nothing. Zero. In contrast, in comparison to the Almighty God. Now, I know that you're smart. I know that you're intelligent. I know that you know the Lord through both his word and through life experience. I know that you know things about your job and parent. Go on down through the list of all the knowledge that you have. I, we're not uh, negating any of that information. 
But when it comes to the knowledge that is necessary to know what is going on in our life, in existence, in culture, again, this is getting back to this idea that the Lord reigns. The Lord alone is sovereign because he alone is the one that knows everything. And this is such a, this causes such a position of humble trust. God, I don't know. Lincoln's leaving. Is that good or bad? I don't know. Time will tell. It's great. He's going to do fabulous because he's aimed at the Lord. But there's so many different circumstances of life. Like, Lord, I don't know. This is where we were sitting in James. Lord, I don't know. I lack. So give me the wisdom that I need, and he's good to give those gifts. He is the God of all knowledge. And because he has perfect knowledge about everything, he and he alone is the one who weighs actions. Here's truth on this side of the balance and all of his knowledge, and here's your action in light of this, this particular life experience, circumstance, whatever's going on. He is the one that is weighing this. And again, as we sit in this idea, God's not waiting to lop off your head either. So let's continue this, and we'll get into some of that. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken. And as we go through these next verses, this is God in his way of how he sets this upside-down world right side up. So many, again, you can sit in your lens and understanding of all of humanity and all that you have observed, and we see all of the damage that is going on. We are told God is the one who sets things right. The bows of the mighty are broken. Those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven Again, this idea of completeness. And she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among the princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. Verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. Does the idea that the Lord executes capital punishment bug you? His capital punishment. Like God, in his perfect, sovereign, holy justice, separates an individual's spirit from their body in a physical death. And not only that, in eternity, we are told that he will send those into their second death, permanently removing human beings from his presence. What do you think of Hannah's God? Is that your God? Now, that can sound really callous and really hard, and who is this and why? We're going to get into a moment later on that God delighted to kill Eli's sons. There's a, there's a context. There's, there's a reason. But what Hannah is expressing in this song and in this poetry, God has all power. 
He is the one that is created to begin with in the beginning. He has the power over life and over death. And even those that find themselves in a physical grave in Sheol, in hell, he has the power to raise them up. And we are told that we will be raised up in his son for all eternity. Look at the reason there, halfway through verse 8. He says, for, she says, sorry, for, this is the reason Again, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He is the creator. He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of the saints. That's a promise in the word that you can circle. He will guard your feet, his saints, his holy ones. But the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. There's no power. There's no money no physical strength, no intellectual strength. There's no strength that any man or woman is going to prevail over God. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. And this is is definite war battle language, even tying into Psalm 2, that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces, picked up in Revelation multiple times. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces from heaven... He will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So here, even this idea, this, earlier this week, we had a couple lightning strikes over the house that it was lightning and it was boom and the boom was, I mean, it was, I jumped. I mean, we're in bed, and we're sitting there going to sleep, and you see the flash, and not even a second later is a gigantic kaboom. And again, this is, this is the idea of just the power of a thunderstorm representing the power of God. A lot of this imagery is linked to, you know, there's battle in the heavens. And again, this is, this is all poetic imagery to help understand just the nature and character of the power of God, that he is the one who thunders. He is the one who judges. There is a, not only a foreshadowing here, there are a few verses that you can go to uh, prior in this historical context where he promised a king to the nation of Israel and all of its imagery, and where she says he has exalted the horn of his anointed. The idea for horn, again, its power, its authority is the imagery. But this is the first time where the word Messiah is linked to Jesus, where it's linked to his promised king. So again, out of the mouth of Hannah. I just... uh, I don't know if you took the time to do it this week. I would encourage you, if you did not, that you would take the time in this upcoming week just to sit and meditate in the words that Hannah is expressing in her context at her moment, that these are all the things that she says about our God, not just her God, but our God. Now, this is definition there in verse 11. Elkanah went to his house at Ramah. And the child ministered. He served uh, the Lord before Eli the priest. Again, this wasn't just a, an individual decision for Hannah. Both she and her husband are like-minded in all of their plans and purposes for Samuel and leaving him there. But a lot of emphasis in these first two chapters lifts Hannah to a glorious position. What a woman. All right, contrast. Verse 12. 
Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. Literally, sons of Belial means that they are worthless men. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he, uh, he asks this question, what accord, what agreement does Jesus have with Belial? What agreement does Jesus have with worthlessness? The idea is absolutely nothing. So the picture of corruption here is in opposition to God. And it makes, this, it makes this statement about Hophni and Phinehas that they did not know the Lord. Chapter 1 tells us that these guys are priests. So what in the world are priests serving the Almighty God for and then they don't know who the Lord is? Does this happen in our day? Yes. <laughs> story after story testimony after testimony of not just pastors but elders or deacons or worship leaders or youth pastors doesn't matter where people are serving in the body of christ just part of the body of christ so many gather in the name of jesus who do not know jesus and again there's a snapshot that's given of their hearts ultimately this snapshot that we're given as we read through all of this it's a lot of old testament sacrificial imagery that we're not going to sit in all of it is ultimately pointing to jesus and their sin is not obeying the lord in that because they are they are causing those who want to worship god to hate god and abhor god and just have things to criticize because of their behavior but ultimately these guys are doing exactly what they want to do when they want to do it it's me before God is their attitude which is an exact contrast because what does Jesus tell us in the New Testament you me we need to deny ourselves die to ourselves take up our cross as we follow him day in and day out it is always Jesus before me here, these guys are the exact opposite. So they're corrupt. They don't know the Lord. The priest's custom with the people was when that any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling, that he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pots, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fats, the priest's servants would come and say, to the man who sacrificed, give me meat for roasting to the priests, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. But if a man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. And then the therefore statement again, all of this is just a corrupt attitude, a worthless attitude, a me before God attitude, a I'm going to do it my way, not God's way attitude, breaking the images that God is providing so that his kids would know who he is and who they are in position to him. Verse 17 gives a summary. The sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. Why? For the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So you have Hophni and Phinehas. Their sin is very great because those who are coming, they are abhorring the offering of the Lord. They themselves are abhorring it. And then we get this contrast. So Hophni and Phinehas, there's this bouncing back and forth as a... As a contrasting them and Samuel. So verse 18, Samuel ministered before the Lord. He's serving the Lord even as a child. We're told in the next chapter, 
Samuel does not know the Lord at this point either. But Samuel's lack of knowledge, it's not in disobedience, it's lack of experience. He has not had a, a, he has not had a personal encounter with his God yet, is what the text is communicating. And we'll get to that in the next chapter next week. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child, wearing a cute little linen ephod, so the, the, the garb of the priests that are serving. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the, Lord, for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own house. And the Lord visited Hannah. He attended to Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And in all of this language, you know, from the very beginning of Samuel, um, there's, a, there's a one thought that especially in these early chapters that Samuel is the author. And again, you got to sit, so if Samuel is the one authoring these, this, these early chapters in this narrative, like at what point did he sit down with his mom? At what point did it, like, as Hannah was meditating on how she was going to celebrate handing her son over to the Lord as a permanent offering, as a permanent loan, how did, how did she sit in this and write this down? At what point in Samuel's life did Hannah communicate this song to Samuel for him to be able to write it down? Like, this is, what, this is the kingdom melody that my mom sang to our God as she dedicated me to the service of the Lord my entire life. As she is coming year by year, they're coming for a festival. Samuel now has responsibilities as a young child, whatever that looked like in Eli's household and, and being essentially a priest's apprentice. Samuel is going to become a priest in the culture in that day. So as he is learning and growing and his mom and his dad are coming during festival time, what did his responsibilities look like that took him away from that opportunity to be able to spend long quality time with his parents and with his younger siblings? Or, you know, did they stay a little bit extra long? But what did those conversations look like? If she brought her son a new linen ephod year by year. Again, this is, this is an outer priestly robe garment. This is something that she would have made with, with joy and with sacrifice. I'm sure a lot of tears went into it as she is making it, as she is providing this new garment that's a little bit long, uh, when she gives it to him, and the next year when she shows up, she missed a year of her son's growth. Like, you got to sit with all of this emotion. You got to sit with, and again, not just the emotion, but what it is of Hannah and Elkanah and Samuel all living in the Lord, for the Lord, by the Lord, through the Lord, focused on the Lord in all of this in the midst of hard times. Not easy whatsoever, but Samuel is growing before the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel. How they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So again, this is the contrast. Here you have Eli. He's not defined as the high priest. The assumption is that he's the high priest. His sons are underneath his authority in the work that they are doing in the name of the Lord. And Eli knows the behavior of his sons. 
And in this, we're going to sit in, Eli has something to say to his sons about it. But the, what's lacking in Eli's life is he doesn't take action. So what we were told in the beginning by Hannah in her song that the Lord weighs actions, the actions is what he weighs in all of his knowledge. Eli has very clear recognition that my, my boys aren't living right, they're not serving right, they're not doing right. And I have something to say and we're gonna have a conversation and he has the conversation. Eli's misstep is that he doesn't do anything about it. And again, this isn't a major stone to throw at Eli's head. What it is, is an encouragement for us, especially parents. It doesn't matter what age your children are. If you see something that is amiss in the Lord, there are things that need to go beyond conversation. Yeah, conversation needs to happen. The major issue with his sons is they don't respond to the conversation. Because they don't repent, because they don't turn, because they keep doing what they're doing, then action needs to transpire. And that's where Eli fails, is not responding correctly. So he hears everything. These women who are assembling at the door, the, in Exodus chapter 38, there's a description of women who are assembling and they're there serving. And just like Samuel is there serving in his, his context, there are women who are there serving the Lord at the tabernacle in their context. And rather than this being a holy, godly thing, here the priests are sleeping with these women, the women sleeping with the priests, and it is an absolute mess. Verse 23, so he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. So sit in this picture. God is judge. You have the plaintiff and the defendant in a court scene. And if you, somebody sins against another, the plaintiff is accusing the defendant. Who's standing in judgment? The judge, God. Now Eli's statement, but if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? So now the Lord's the plaintiff. The man who sinned against the Lord is the defendant. Who's sitting in the judgment seat? The Lord. So with the, right, if the Lord is judge and prosecution, where's the defense? And again, the New Testament answers this, praise God, because who sinned against Yahweh? If any of you sin, and you turn, you repent, you have a transformed mind and heart and thought, and you come to the Lord, and you confess, this is right, this is wrong, wash me, cleanse me, change me, give me the new heart that you promised, transform my mind, transform my life into the image of Christ. John tells us that Jesus is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Jesus is the one who intercedes. He is our mediator, the almighty God, God the Son, standing in between us, God the Father, as our high priest, which we're going to get this description in a minute, he is the one that is interceding on our behalf with his blood to cleanse. It's the, the picture is incredible. And again, you want to sit in all the ways that the Lord has saved you and delivered you. Eli's question, if a man sins against the Lord, 
woe is me, because who's going to intercede on my behalf? And the answer is Jesus. Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. My translation says, because the Lord desired to kill him. What do you think of God? Is God just in his, and again, this word desire, the Lord delighted to kill Hophni and Phinehas is the word. And is their lack of repentance because that's the Lord's will? You know, because it says because, that kind of makes you think, you know, the, the, this word can be translated many different ways. Thus would be a better term. Here, these young men did not respond to the rebuke, the holy rebuke from their father. They refused to repent. They continued going down the, the same behavior. Therefore, thus the Lord delighted to take them out. And the reason to remove them from the scene is that they are the ones that have become a stumbling block and abhorrence to people who are coming to worship God. They are the ones who are keeping people from the truth. And if I ever become that, may God take me out of the way. If I ever become a, 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 an inhibitor, a, a stumbling block, a roadblock, a wall for anybody to know their creator, God has my permission to take me out like he needs my permission. But I, but I, want, I want that same in every single congregation that gathers throughout the world where there are men and where there are women who are standing as stumbling blocks and roadblocks from people who yearn to know that don't even know anything yet. And they're sitting there and they, they're looking at all these people and they have, we, have all these, we have all these stories that we can say, if this is what Christians are, if this is who God is, I don't want anything to do with God. You ever heard anybody say that? I had my daughter yesterday give us a testimony of a friend that she took to church last weekend. And because the words that are coming out of the communicator's mouth, she had very not nice words that I can't repeat in church to say about that man. Because he stood as a roadblock because he gave her no definition to the harsh words that were coming out of his mouth. And again, I don't have a stone to throw at the guy. I'm sure he's a brother. I know that I have miscommunicated God's mind and God's heart in this room before. And if I do so, I need the rebuke. I need to be corrected. I have come up here and apologized before. And if I make a mistake in the future, I'll apologize again because that's not my desire and that's not my will. That's why God took them out. When you sit in the, the major wars, when God brings the nation of Israel into the promised land and go kill every man, woman, and child, children, animals, take them all out, cut them off. God gave these cultures hundreds of years to repent and to turn. And because if those cultures remained in the land, they would turn his kids away from the truth. And what happened? They didn't do the war. They didn't go fully. The people remained in the land. What happened to God's kids? They believed the lies. They latched on to ideas and idols and, and just behaviors that are outside of God, doing what those were doing around them. And that, those cultures became a cancer to the people. 
God is cutting off a cancer in his judgment of Eli's sons. And again, you have to couple not just a singular sentence in the word of God, you have to attach it to all of God's revelation. And if you want to know God's ultimate heart, Ezekiel 18 is fabulous because he directly says, I do not delight. I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. I do not take pleasure in separating anybody's spirit from their body. I do not take pleasure in separating anybody from my presence for eternity. He stood in the gap and he has done something about it. God reveals his heart. He said, I take pleasure in the man and the woman who turns. Confronted, humbled, confession, saying it again, repeating God's words, believing his words. God, help me, change me, wash me. This is the heart that God is pursuing. And again, the snapshot of Samuel in verse 26, in contrast to Hophni and Phinehas, the child Samuel grew in stature, literally in his walk, and in favor both with the Lord and men. And we're going to save the prophet's prophecy for next week. Otherwise, we're going to be here for like 20 more minutes. Worship team, come on up. We have no communion this morning because we have no grape juice. However, can you still take communion without the communion elements? Can you still remember Jesus without a wafer and without some grape juice? Absolutely. Can you, can you remember Jesus with a glass of water and some Wonder Bread? If that's all you have, absolutely. Here's the thing, my brothers and my sisters. I want nothing more than to personally know who my creator is. And I am humbly thankful daily that he not only has made himself known to me in history, but that he makes himself known to me every single day. I was telling some people earlier, like I, I read a news article this morning where I was just, I couldn't stop the tears. I wasn't wailing and sobbing or anything like that, just constant tears draining out of my face. And again, the, the context of this was just a snapshot of believers who don't know each other. And again, this is, this is on CNN. So of all the people to be promoting the gospel, here they are. I, I was weeping at the, this picture of the tenderness of how God has transformed these people that are in relationship for a specific reason. That's that, this is this idea of just how he has transformed and changed us. Like these are, these are the things, these weren't tears of, of, of mourning. These are just tears of joy of another picture and another testimony of how radically Jesus change, has already changed us and how he brings about circumstances in our life for us just to simply show other people the God that I know. And this is part of the conversation this morning, like, just, and asking that question, like, is Hannah's God your God? Because she's given a snapshot of the Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, and it takes time to get to know God in his fullness, and it takes God to pro allow us to go through circumstances that we grow in our knowledge of him over time, yes? 
But here, may God give us the ability to communicate the God that we know. May God forgive us for all the ways that we have communicated him poorly. May God forgive us for all the ways that each one of us have been stumbling blocks where somebody has used my name and my behavior in a way where they threw a stone at the bride of Christ, at the church, at me, at the Lord himself. May the Lord forgive you and cleanse you for when those, your actions and your words have not portrayed God in spirit and in truth. And praise God that he cleanses us. Again, there's major meditation points in this section. God, free us from our idolatry. Free us from our thoughts and our attitudes about you that are not real. And how, we, and how we tie those things into, into our culture, into politics, into the body of Christ, into our household. Lord, give us that freedom, that liberty that you promise in Christ. Free us from everything that is not true. Because Jesus and Jesus alone is true. And you and you alone have all knowledge. And the knowledge that I think I have, Lord, make it that perfect image of your son. Amen?